Well, good morning and <clears throat> praise God. It's great to be home. As you guys know, for the last couple of uh, Sundays, I have been back in Colorado um, helping to transition my dad into hospice, and that was uh, a pretty long, interesting process. But let me open us up in prayer um, as we get going here today. Lord Jesus, we love you. We serve you. Um, Lord, I pray as we really take a look at our hearts, Lord, and how we're doing, Lord, as Christians, that you, Holy Spirit, would challenge us, that you, Holy Spirit, would convict us in the areas that we need to grow in and help us to truly love, help us to understand what Paul is telling us when we are told that we need to truly, sacrificially, and sincerely love others. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide my mind, my heart, and my words today as we bring your word. Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, and, and help us to not just be listeners of your words, but doers. Help us to live the life you have called us to live. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, again, good morning to you guys that are here at the church. Good morning to you guys that are online. And as I started doing last week, I want to encourage you guys. You know, I would like to get to a place where by Christmas time, we could say we have about 70% of our congregation here and maybe, you know, maybe 25%, a little bit less online. I know we're kind of flip-flop of that right now. But if you are online and the only reason you guys are online is sheerly convenience i get it maybe being at church in your pajamas is kind of nice i'll be honest when when your shirt and your pants don't have to match it's kind of awesome but being here in the house of god i'd like to encourage you guys to do that again if you have little kids if this is a health related thing and that's what's keeping you home i get it we don't want to pressure you to to, to put yourself at risk but if it's surely just convenience and i want to definitely encourage you guys um, to come to the church so we can be um, getting maybe to a little bit more of what we used to think is normal. And of course, um, I, I don't think our, our world will ever be like it was two years ago. And in some ways, maybe that's a good thing. I don't think it's all negative at all. Um, but the other thing, you know, I, I think it's important is to acknowledge that things are tough. You know, going through the pandemic here for, I mean, it's going to be almost two years. And I would love to say that in 2022, everything will be like it was two years ago. But the reality is, I just don't think that's going to be the case. And so it can be kind of discouraging. It can be challenging. And as I've mentioned before, nearly one third, as Barna reports, of people that you know, call themselves committed Christians, they have quit going to church. You just talk to pastors in the Bay Area, pastors anywhere, and they'll tell you that attendance is down significantly. And that's because the pandemic has really challenged people's faith, and that's why it's important over the last few weeks we have been talking about what Paul teaches us in Romans 12, that we have to evaluate our faith from time to time, that we can't just sit back and think we're doing okay. And so today we're wrapping up our series that we've been in, and for the past couple of weeks, as we have been discussing, examining how you're doing, we've talked about the primary gauge being how we love one another. And it's not just a generic love, it is sacrificial and sincere love. It's coming from the heart, it's not fake, and it's also desiring what's in the best interest of someone else and not yourself. During week one, we talked about what that means exactly. So if you don't remember, please you know, take a look at uh, the sermon a couple weeks ago. But it's really, again, doing what's in the best interests of someone else, putting their needs above your own. 
And then last week we talked about another way that we can express sincere and sacrificial love. And that's how we, number one, serve God. And then number two, how we serve our fellow brothers and sisters. And this week we continue on and we talk about how is it that we can express sincere and sacrificial love with a fallen world? How do we love non-Christians? Um, at times it's easier to relate to, to associate with, to do things with people that have the same belief system as us, but clearly that's not always going to be the case. And how do we make disciples? How do we share the gospel if we're not interacting with those that are not Christians? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Throughout the Bible, we are often reminded that for Christians to have healthy relationships with one another, unity is what is most important. Paul talks about unity all the time when he talks about churches, that we should be united, we should have the, mind, the same mindset. But for our relationships with non-Christians, peace is the key. In Romans 12, verses 14 through 21, Paul gives us several principles that we can live by to help us better express sacrificial and sincere love through peace with non-Christians. Let me read uh, let me read those verses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is, right in, what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We'll get into this more, especially the heaping coals part, because I don't want you guys to misconstrue that. I want you to really understand what exactly Paul is talking about here. But as we look at Romans 12, verses 14 through 21, the first principle that Paul gives us is bless those who persecute you. I have mentioned over the last couple of months that as Christians, we will be persecuted. And persecution comes in all kinds of forms. It isn't just someone physically abusing you, mentally or emotionally abusing you, or chastising you. It could be someone who is bashing your name. Maybe they're talking behind your back. There's so many different ways that Christians can and are persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, uh, 3 verse 12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. So if you desire to be a Christian, if you are a Christian, you are going to go through some kind of persecution in your life. 1 John 3, verse 13, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. That's not easy to listen to. It's not easy to hear, but it is a biblical truth. And so you may be asking yourselves, why? What is the reason that we are persecuted as Christians? Well, the bottom line is we do not live the way the world lives. Or I should put it this way, we shouldn't 
live the way the world does. Because there are certainly Christians out there that when you see them, they don't seem any different. But we are called to live differently, and that's why the world persecutes us. That's why the world hates us. John 15, verse 19, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. We don't live the way we do, the world does. We don't view things, or we are not supposed to view things the way the world does. Our desires, our passions, our focuses are different than the world, than those that don't believe in Jesus Christ. The way we do things is different. 1 Peter 4, verses 1-5, through 5, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As I mentioned previously, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means we're trying to fight against it. That is not our desire. It makes us sick. We can't stand when we sin. We are being convicted by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when we have that same attitude as Christ who suffered, who died for us. As we continue in this, uh, this passage, it says, As a result, they do not live the rest, of their li- the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Basically sin. You have lived sinful lives. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless. Join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So again, there's the explanation of why Christians are persecuted. It's because... We're not trying to live our lives for pleasure. We're not trying to live our lives for our own self-interest. We're living for Jesus and because of what he did for us. So despite this persecution that Paul tells us we are going to go through, that's just part of what it means to be a Christian, he also tells us that sacrificial and sincere or the sacrificial and loving response that we could have is to bless and not curse. And when we talk about blessing, it's a little different than maybe what we think about every day, but it's, it's asking God to bless someone, to give someone favor, to bestow peace upon them, sustenance and prosperity. So when someone is fighting against us, when someone is attacking us, Maybe they're talking behind our our back. Maybe they're doing some very negative things against us. The loving response is to say, God, please give them favor. Help them, Lord, with the situations that they're going through in their lives. But oftentimes we do what we're told not to, and that is we curse. And this isn't like a swear word. Some of you may feel like doing that, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is declaring evil. On someone. It's asking God to withhold favor, and it's possibly asking God to act as a power for ill in someone's life or their situations. Church, do you ever do that? When someone is attacking you, when someone's saying is saying something negative against you, do you ever say, like, God, go get them? 
You know, I'll be honest with you. I have done that myself. I can confess that. It's a reality. And if I'm a pastor and I can call myself out on that, I'm sure every single one of you at some point in time has done the exact same thing. It's not easy to ask God to give favor to people who are attacking us. And it's not just a normal way for us to think. We need God's help with that. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bless others. We're supposed to pray for other people, even when they challenge us, even when they are so frustrating to us, and we don't curse them. In other words, if we are expressing sacrificial and sincere love when people persecute us, we need to ask God to move in a positive way in their life instead of asking God to deal with them harshly. As Paul continues, the next principle that he gives us, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, Paul, he's not just saying Christians should acknowledge the highs and lows that people go through in their life. I think often if someone's celebrating a birthday or if they've experienced a death in their family, we can say, hey, yeah, you know, I feel sorry for you, or hey, happy birthday. But he's not just asking us to acknowledge what people are going through. Paul is saying, put yourself in that person's shoes. Understand the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is understanding from your perspective. Where empathy, it's trying to put yourself in that person's shoes and understanding why they may have particular feelings that they do. This has rung so true for me over the last several months. I know many of you have have or are dealing with cancer yourself, or maybe you have a loved one who, is, who has uh, been in hospice, you've lost someone you cared about. You know, prior to the, this year, you know, I would feel for you. I would be praying for you. But I didn't really understand what it means when I would hear people saying, hey, my, my loved one is on hospice. They could die tomorrow. But you better believe I get that now. Now I have more empathy than I ever had because I am trying to, and it's not even just trying, I can put myself in other people's shoes that are going through this. And that's what we need to do. If we want to truly mourn with those who mourn, if we want to rejoice with those who rejoice, we need to work on our empathy. We need to work on being able to see things from other people's perspective. Because we will truly be able to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn if we can do that. If we can understand where people are at emotionally. Again, it's so easy for us to think about our own feelings. This frustrates me. This makes me happy. But when we can get to that point where we're like, why is this person frustrated? Why are they so excited? When we can truly do that in our hearts, it really helps us to live out this principle. Paul moves on, and next he says, live in harmony with one another. This is another way that we can express love through peace with non-Christians. And all these concepts, we can use them with our Christian brothers and sisters as well. It's just this is kind of how it's set up. And this is talking about more how we, again, how we interact with the fallen world, that we interact with people that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So now we live in harmony with one another. 
the Greek word for harmony, it actually means to think the same thing. Now, it's important to understand that this differs from when people say seeing eye to eye or universal agreement. So let me talk about what the difference is. If you are agreeing with someone, you're saying, yeah, I agree, I feel the exact same way. That is very different than saying that there are some universal truths or things that all humans should desire for one another. A common attitude or a purpose that we are hoping for everyone. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone feels this way, but in general, I think we can agree that most people think it is a good thing to help each other. I don't think you have to be a Christian to feel this way. Anybody who hopefully they have some care in their heart, they are hopefully viewing things in a rational way, they want to help each other. They hope people have food to eat and shelter. That's a universal truth. So that's what it means to live in harmony with people that are not Christians. It's having some core hopes, that common attitude that we all share. Paul gives us a couple of things that we can do to help us live in harmony with non-Christians. One, he says, do not be proud. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So be careful of how highly you think of yourself, because chances are you're going to stumble and fall. Don't be so prideful. He builds upon this by telling us, be willing to associate with people of low position. And there's a couple of different ways that commentators view this. One way is a willingness that we should all have to keep the company of those of lower social status or those that are different than us. You know, we tend to kind of have people that we are attracted to, people that we like to spend time with. But if we are going to have peace with the world, if we are going to live in harmony with them, if we are going to truly love them as Christians, we have to be willing to spend time with people that are different than us, people that maybe we wouldn't normally spend time with. The other way some commentators view this statement is being willing to give yourself to humble tasks. An example that came to mind as we, you know, started uh, phase one of, of doing worship here at the church, you know, we didn't have janitorial services at the time. And I don't know, I, you know, how many people jump up and say, hey, I am willing to clean the toilets. That's the first thing they want to do. I would say there's probably not tons of people that do that. But praise God, we have people both in our English and Nichigo ministry that understand this that they are willing to give themselves to humble tasks. It took no time at all for three people to say, we got it. We will deep clean the bathrooms for the time that we don't have janitorial service in the church. So when we think about this, we need to associate people with, with people that are different than us. A great, I would say, test for that is if there are homeless people, do we embrace them? Do we talk with them? Do we invite them to come into service? Do we, you know, do we interact with them the way we would others? Or are we kind of standoffish? And the other one, that if there are tasks that God is calling you to that, man, they're, they're not the, the most incredible tasks, they're not the most incredible ministry experiences, are you willing to do them? Can you clean the bathrooms? Can you file paperwork? Can you sweep you know, the leaves off the front of the church?
This is what it means to have that humble spirit and to be willing to associate with people of low position or to be able to do those menial tasks that not everybody enjoys doing. Paul, as he's been doing here, he just keeps reinforcing his thoughts with other, you know, with great advice and things that we can do. And he continues, uh, you know, continues with the same pattern. Now he says, do not be conceited. So he's telling us to be humble, be willing to do things that not everybody likes to do, be willing to hang out with people that not everybody likes to hang out with. And now he says, don't be conceited. The Greek, again, when we go to the Greek and the Hebrew, it just gives us so much more understanding of of what the biblical writers are saying. Basically here, it's don't be wise in yourself. That's what it means literally. So one commentator said this. He said, the person who is wise in his or her own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of other people. And I think most of us can attest to that, that when there's someone that thinks they know everything, they tend to know absolutely nothing because their wisdom or what they think is only in their head and most people probably don't agree with them. It's interesting that even the Apostle Paul had to be reminded of this. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 6 and 7, Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say because of these surpassingly great revelations. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. As he continues, he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, in order to help me remain humble, not being wise in my own eyes, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So often we talk about why, you know, why did Paul, why did God allow him to have this thorn? We don't know if it was emotional, physical, what it was, but why? And we say, well, one, it was so he would continue relying on Christ. Absolutely. But scripture also says it's so he wouldn't get so puffed up. It's so he wouldn't get conceited. So if the apostle Paul, who we do not measure up to the apostle Paul, I know I do. Absolutely do not. If he needed a reminder to be humble and not to get conceited, all Christians do. That's what helps us to live in a, in a, in a peaceful coexistence and to express that sincere and sacrificial love with non-Christians. So Paul, he ends this section here as he's talking about sincere and sacrificial love with a warning and some reminders about that. And his warning is, do not repay evil for evil. His first reminder that falls right under this and how we can better do this, how we can better keep ourselves from responding to evil that is done to us or evil that we see in the world and not responding with evil. He says, be careful to do what is, in, what is right in the eyes of everyone. The Greek word for right, and I know I'm giving you a lot of definitions, but this is hopefully going to help you guys. It means honorable. So Paul is saying do what is honorable in the eyes of all people. 
That is one way that it's going to keep you from repaying evil for evil. So try to do or do what is honorable in the eyes of all people. However, it is imperative for Christians to understand that we also have to do what is right in God's eyes and that we cannot violate our Christian ethics and morals. Because Paul would not call all Christians to sin and disobey God in order to honor others. That is something he would not do. And unfortunately, in the world we live in, many Christians, in order to keep peace, in order to uh, keep harmony, they end up watering down their Christian morals and ethics, and they start accepting and believing things that God is telling us is wrong. That's not what Paul is saying here. He continues by saying, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So now he's kind of putting a caveat to this here. Similar to doing what is honorable in the eyes of everyone, there is some context. Paul tells us as far as it depends on us. What this means is that there's got to be some situations where despite our peaceful actions, peace may not be possible. In situations like this, in order for Christians to express sincere and sacrificial love, they need to resist the temptation to retaliate, and they need to trust God. That's the key. We have to trust God, and that is so hard. Because when evil is done against us, whatever way, shape, or form that happens, we want to respond. We want to fight back. It's not easy to just sit back. And so we need to get to that place where we resist the temptation to retaliate and where we truly trust God. Paul tells us, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. It's interesting what Paul says about God's wrath, and he starts from referencing Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. Then Paul quotes Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. This, as you know, I mentioned with a couple other uh, sections of this passage, have been interpreted in a couple of different ways. But in the context, and since Paul leaves out when he talks about the burning coals, those, those heaping coals that are burning on someone's head, he leaves out the comment about a reward from God. And so in the context, most likely what, com- what most commentators will say is that this proverb, it's referencing an Egyptian ritual where Persons publicly testify to their penitence by carrying a pan of burning coals around their head. So like they're acknowledging their guilt, their sin by doing this. One author put it this way, Treat your enemy kindly, for that may make him ashamed, him or her, ashamed and lead to their repentance. In other words, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him him or her into a friend. 
So it's not about them being abused or getting burned. It's the hope that, that they will be convicted of their sin or their actions, and they'll repent of them. And hopefully, if they're not Christians, that they'll turn to God. That that guilt inside of them, that shame inside of them, something will make them want to turn to God. The final reminder that he gives, that Paul gives us, it turns back to that initial warning about not paying back evil with evil. It says, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is such a powerful reminder because if the way that we evaluate how we are doing as Christians is based on sincere and sacrificial love. If we're honest with ourselves, we are not doing so well if whenever we are faced with challenges and persecution, whenever something happens that upsets us, that irritates us, that annoys us, if our response is getting frustrated or getting angry, wanting to get even, speaking bad about someone, if that's our response, basically sin, if our response to whatever challenges and persecution comes up against us, if our response is negative, if it's sin, then we aren't doing very well as Christians. That we're struggling in our ability to sacrificially and sincerely love others. But on the other hand, we are doing pretty good if those moments when challenges come our way, when the evil that we are experiencing in our lives, if our response is praying for someone and asking God to help them, if we have that forgiving heart, then we are doing pretty good. And that's the whole point of this. That's what Romans 12, this section is about. It's about evaluating ourselves. How are we doing truly loving people sincerely and sacrificially? I want to end with this challenge. If you've never really evaluated how you are doing as a Christian, and when we opened up this series, I told you most people that I know, most Christians, we don't do that. The first thing they think about is, we don't want to be so judgmental. Well, I'm encouraging you to challenge yourself, evaluate. I gave you scripture upon scripture that says, test yourself, evaluate yourself, see if you are in the faith. We need to do that from time to time. So if you have never really evaluated how you are doing as a Christian, start doing some self-evaluation and begin by using Romans 12 verses 9 through 21 as that barometer, as that gauge. How are you loving? Are you doing it sacrificially and sincerely? And if this is something that you do on a regular or fairly regular basis, maybe once a year, twice a year, maybe you sit down and you say, how am I doing with my faith? Then begin to pray and ask God, are there areas that I need to change? The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And if you ask God, reveal to me, is there any sin I need to repent of? Is there any behaviors or something I need to change? The Holy Spirit can help you identify that. But it's all based on your willingness to do so. Often the Holy Spirit tells us things and we don't listen because we don't want to change. So I encourage you, ask God to reveal things to you. Be so bold 
to ask other Christians who will be honest with you how they think you are doing as a Christian. The best feedback I get is from my mentors. Most are pastors, so they get it. And I love when they can say, Andrew, yeah, you know what? You're not doing so good at this. Or Andrew, you need to work on this. Every now and then, maybe they'll say, hey, you're doing pretty awesome at that. That's great, because I trust them. They're giving me feedback that I need. You know, view all of this, everything we've talked about for the last three weeks, as a way to know if you are maturing in your faith. Scripture calls us to mature in our faith, to be maturing Christians who don't need the spiritual milk anymore. We're on solid food. We're on solid meat, right? We don't want to be on baby food all our lives as Christians. There are only three places you can be in your Christian walk, and this is important to remember. You're either growing, you're dying, or you're staying the same. And there are very few situations in life where dying and staying the same are desirable. Very few. And Christianity is not one of them. God wants us all to grow and mature in our faith. So this week, I put that challenge out to you. Ask God how you're doing. Evaluate yourself and ask others. Amen? Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, thank you, Lord, that that you give us, through your word, ways to evaluate our faith, that you don't just leave us hanging, that you don't just leave us at that place where we are either dying spiritually, Lord Jesus, or where we are just status quo. Lord, you want us to grow and mature in our faith. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would take what Paul tells us here in Romans 12 to start evaluating our own lives if we are growing in our faith. If we are expressing truly sacrificial and sincere love. Lord, I pray that you would help us not only to love our fellow brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, to serve you with a servant's heart and to serve others, Lord, in the same way. Lord, I ask you to also help us as we engage and interact with those who are not Christians. Help us to love them where they're at. Help us, Lord, to understand them truly on a heart level. But help us, Lord, not to give in to the temptation of becoming the world because although we are in the world, we are not of it, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to become the church and the people that you want us to be who sacrificially love and sincerely love because of what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that if there are those listening, if those watching, those here in person today, Lord, that are either struggling with their faith, maybe they don't even know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to them in an incredible way, that you would give them that feeling that they need you, that there's something not quite right in their life. Help them to understand that, Lord, you are the person, you are the everything that can transform their life. Lord Jesus, help us to be a committed, loving church. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.